Welcome into another episode of ESPN's NBL podcast. My name's Kane Pittman, and alongside me, my esteemed colleague, the blazer wearing, award winning, number one newsbreaker in the business, Olsen Ulrich. Sounding a little, and by the way, sounding a little bit croaky this morning. He was in Sydney at this game, and rumor has it he saw the sunrise. Olgan, uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us today and dusting yourself off. I really appreciate Don't patronize it. me. Don't you dare. <laughs> I, 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 was, I was a professional man. I covered of the course. series. I was yes. at the game. A, a beautiful game five. Like, yes. an electric atmosphere. Um, and, yeah, the, the evening went into, into the morning. That's just how things go. You just The Sydney Kings were celebrating, and I was around to sort of observe it all, and it was. I was around last year as well, and it was. It was similar scenes. It was in the the chairman's lounge, the situation, the kind of ballroom at the back. Um, everyone going a bit, going a bit wild, and yeah, it was. It was a cool experience in that in that building. No patronizing here, Ogs, because I know <laughs> if I was there, I would have been doing the exact damn same thing. You get to the end of the season, and it's fun to to celebrate, to have a little bit of a chance to relax and talk to a bunch of people that have just achieved something pretty special. And that was the Sydney Kings last night. Just a ridiculous series. And I mentioned this to you. We did the jump last night, the pregame, into tip-off. Quickly ran home, watching the game. I was on my couch and I was stressed about what was going on in this game because I didn't know who was going to win. I could see the tension in the building. Both teams fighting as they were all season long. Couldn't care less who was going to win this game, but I just knew that it was coming down to the fourth quarter. And I woke up this morning and I was still excited about what I watched last night. Awesome, crazy, wild season. And the series was just fitting for everything that we've seen. And the Kings, in the end, get the job done in back-to-back fashion. But, geez, they were made to work for it. it. This was a very, this just had a very, very different feel to what we saw last year with this same team. So as soon as the game finished, I there's the whole spectacle of the celebration, right? Everyone gets on the court. You have the speeches, and then we've got press conferences. And then the Sydney Kings go and celebrate. And... All I wanted to do was just go home and rewatch the game mm. because from the moment I walked into the arena before the game, it was so tense. Everyone was just tense as hell. You know, you, you can see the breakers people just sort of on edge. Sydney Kings, you know, I'm looking at Paul Smith and he's sort of standing to the side looking a bit reserved, which is just not really his nature. Um, everyone was, everyone knew what was on the line. And that, that's like obviously the nature of like a do or die game. And then we go into the game and the breakers come out hot, right? Which is crazy, which was crazy, right? I think they were up 20 to 11 at one point in the first quarter. And it seemed like they were getting everything they wanted. They, they found their advantages. They executed really well. Sydney Kings were struggling. And, you know, we've seen some of their half-court struggles in this series. And it was looking like this record crowd was about to walk away pretty angry. And there were, you know, ups and downs. And like I don't know how it... It, and it really picked up toward the end, and we'll, and we'll talk about what happened in that fourth quarter. But how did how did it come across, um, you know, on the broadcast as far as like the the feel? Yeah, I mean, the atmosphere was extraordinary, and it's funny because I was lucky enough to be in Auckland for Game Four, which mm. was also a record crowd. The numbers this series has put up has just been insane in terms of the fans uh, showing up. And for me, I saw you tweet when Xavier Cooks had the and one in the fourth quarter that it might have been the loudest arena. It was so you've... loud. And, and, and I sort of sat back and I said a similar thing with half the amount of people in that smaller <laughs> building at Spark Arena 
And sometimes the small arenas are louder by nature and the sound mm. is bouncing off left, right and center. When Barry Brown had to steal in game four and threw it down, it was a sustained, just absolutely <laughs> insane noise. And Andrew Gay said on the post-game uh, coverage on ESPN, he said, I hope it came through in the arena. And it did. But it wasn't until the Sydney Kings got really on top in the fourth quarter and the celebration started to begin that you could tell the crowd was actually jubilant and celebratory because throughout most of this game, when the Breakers had a double-digit lead, when scores were tied after three quarters, when they took an early lead in the fourth, all the cheers that were coming from the home crowd were kind of, it was almost like, okay, this is a relief that we just scored because we are just trying to hang in there. Yeah, it was, yeah, I agree. It was tense um, to the point where it wasn't until, what, two minutes to go in the game where we sort of knew what the result was probably going to be. Up until then, it was trading buckets, right? Like Derek Walton Jr., oh, it looks like he's taken over. Isaiah Liafa hits a big three, right? Just there was always this back and forth, and New Zealand just wouldn't die. And it's the nature of the way they've played the entire series, the entire season. It's the nature of the way they're built, the way they're coached, um, and the personnel they have, but they just wouldn't go away. Um, and I think it was that Xavier Cook's putback that it was just the most cathartic moment for the fans in the building because you can sort of tell they were on edge and they see that go through. And it's not just the fact that it was a putback layup that put them ahead, but it was also, okay, cool. Like Xavier cooks has really, really shown up tonight. Like he has, he has looked like a shell of himself throughout the entire series because of the sort of caucus he's been dealing with, but he hits that. And it was sort of the culmination of a really, really good aggressive game from him. And then he gets that block on the other end, which was, maybe the block of the year on, on Derek Parton. And it was sort of then you sort of, you got to feel that the crowd was like, all right, like we're, we've done it now. Like it was tense up until that point. And then there was sort of a level of trust in Derek Walton Jr. at the end of that game to get it done. And he was just unfreaking believable. <laughs> so I, you know this, normally when we do this podcast, I've got pages and notes and I'm doing all this research and I told you that's not going to be the case today. <laughs> I'm just going to remember what I was thinking during the moments in game five and we're going to zigzag all over the place. You mentioned Derek Walton. He was fantastic. We had a phone conversation, Oggs, on what day was it? Tuesday. And we just briefly said, what do you think is going to happen here? Mm. And we both picked Sydney to win the series overall. And I think yeah. we still thought Sydney were probably going to win this game. But we did say to each other, the reason why we picked Sydney at the start of the series is there, there was a number of reasons. But with Xavier Cooks and Derek Walton, you felt that they probably had the two best players in the series. And, yeah. and the breakers are awesome. Don't get me wrong. And we're going to give them all the credit they deserve as we continue to roll through this. So in my head, I'm like, okay, I still think Sydney's going to win this game. But we hadn't seen... MVP Xavier Cooks for a number of reasons. And first of all, Jarrell Brantley deserves a lot of credit as well. Yeah. And Xavier Cooks, in typical fashion in the post-game interview, said, there's nothing wrong with me. I was fine. I was just playing like shit. And okay. you love that. But you know that he was battling through some stuff. But he was able to get it done in game five of this series. And I've seen all this conversation about, well, is Xavier Cooks going to play through? He's got the NBA on his mind. Certainly my understanding from talking to people with Sydney there was never a question that Xavier Cooks was going to play. And the only question was if he was so, if the injury was at a state where the Sydney Kings would look after the welfare of Xavier Cooks and say, hey, we are not letting you play. Because in game two, when he only played the nine minutes, Cooks still wanted to get on the floor 
it was yeah. the medical staff that said, we are not letting you play this game of basketball because we are taking care of you, the person. So I understand why that was a talking point coming through, but it's certainly from what I understood, Cooks was always going to play and he was going to lay it all on the line and we saw it when it mattered the most. Yeah, it was it was really weird throughout the series. He, ha- he had no lift. Yeah. That's what it looked like. Um, and Chase said it, I think, a bunch of times, but he said it again in the, the final press conference where it happened in practically the first play of the entire series uh-huh. where he took it to the rim and, and kind of connected with Rob Lowe and got like a bunch of corkies in the same spot. And throughout the series, if, if everyone noticed, you can see his leg really taped up. It was like pretty significant taping around that knee and quad area. Last night, there was no taping. And I don't know if that's just a nature of the progression of an injury healing or if it's just, look, we don't want to limit him or hinder him at all or constrict his movements or anything. And he looked like a different beast last night. Um, it was, you know, it, it was a struggle in the first quarter because the Sydney Kings just couldn't get stops. But as soon as they started getting stops and Xavier Cooks would rip it off the rim and then, you know, start to push it in transition and semi-transition, he, you can tell he had a different level of confidence getting on the rim. Um, and that just opened everything up for everyone else. And it sort of, it, it got the Kings back in the game and, you know, he, a really tough bucket around Rob Lowe to end the second quarter was a game changer as well. It was, it was a scary first half for a little bit and all of a sudden it was back to practically nil all. Um, and so he really lifted when they absolutely needed him because there was a chance, there was a chance that New Zealand was, they were close to going 15 up. If that was the case, that's a tough thing to overcome. And despite the big night that he had, I mean, he still, you know, only played 27 and a half minutes in this game, but there was an absolute flashpoint in the final minute of the third quarter where Tom Abercrombie, the old Wiley vet who had a pretty underrated, solid series, particularly defensively, versatility off the charts for a guy that is 35. I mean, I, you, you love Tom Abercrombie, but he drew a charge on Xavier Cooks. Chase Buford challenged. Again, I've said this before, my thoughts on the charge block stuff, I think they lean far too heavily on the offensive foul rather than the block. Yeah, Not going to get overturned. They watch it on replay, so they didn't. And you could see Chase's face as he's, as he's realizing, man, we are basically neck and neck with this Breakers team. Cooks has now picked up his fourth foul. We're going to have to ride the bench again, as they've done in big-time moments throughout the entire season and through the championship series. But we need to survive a couple of minutes stretch here at the start of the fourth quarter. And the Breakers made a move. And they were leading 66-59 to in this game. Angus Glover, I don't know if he's got broken ribs, a punctured lung, or what the hell's going on with him, but he can't even stand up straight. And he enters the game again. Gets the ball in the right corner, opposite side from the Breakers bench has to absolutely throw up a heave. And hey, you've got to be fortunate sometimes. That heave came off the side of the backboard and straight to him. And he threw it down with two hands. And then a couple of possessions later, he knocks down the three. It is some real heroic stuff that you'll be watching the highlights forever of the way he's running up and down the floor. And that stretch there and those five points, that completely changed the game. And if they don't get that from Glover, I don't know if they win the title. Yeah, I spoke with Angus after the game. He said, at the very least, it's a very bruised rib. At the most, it's like a broken rib or broken ribs and something with my lungs. That I was hope, like I hope that he's fine moving forward and nothing else, and he just has to spend some time recovering now. Yep. But the more 
serious the injury, the 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 better the the better the story. As we oh no, back. of course. Oh no, he's, he's an absolute hero. If it's if it's a bruised rib, it's just like all right, bro. Just like stand up. Um, oh, I know, but I'm look, not... I'll say this: he was he was the most energetic and excited and happiest in all of the you know post game celebratory stuff. He was. Well, he might have had mood. some liquid uh, painkillers. Uh, yeah, a little to... bit. Also, Chase Buford did a shoey out of Angus Glover's shoe, which I couldn't think of a worse person's mm-hmm. shoe to do it out of. Just sweaty. Maybe your hardest worker. Yeah, um, Angus Glover is. I'm always like I'm always reticent to talk about his injuries. Um, because he, I think, in the, the Australian basketball world, he famously had three knee reconstructions. You know, he's got two of his hamstrings were used to repair his ACLs, and then you know his dad's hamstring or his dad's elbow was, was used to repair the third one. Um, and he still plays with like with a level of like minutes restriction and limitations because he he's a the kind of body that you have to manage. Um, but it's important to mention that stuff because it it just it's contextually just so significant to where he is now um to understand and Derek Walton Jr spoke about it to under, understand the sort of perseverance you need to get over that stuff and then not just to get over it but to to get to this higher level where you are playing significant minutes in a deciding game in a, in a championship series and making big play after big play and not just this game, but throughout the entire series, he just would hit big shot after big shot, had the best season of his career. Um, it was one of the most like courageous performances I've ever seen. Um, just him hunched over after hitting that giant three that I think put the Sydney Kings within two. Um, and it just, he was also guarding, he was guarding Jarrell Brandley in the post, which oh. was probably a broken rib. Like that, that's, <laughs> that's psychopath stuff, but that's, if you know Angus Glover and you've known him throughout his junior career up until now, that's what he is. He is an absolute psychopath in the best sort of way. Um, and then just big credit to him for stepping up, especially when they the Kings didn't get much output from DJ Vasiljevic at zero points last night. Tim Suarez wasn't an offensive producer last night, so they needed someone. So Quatnoy and Angus Glover were huge off the bench. And I think Angus Glover arguably was their what third most important player this series. Yeah, you just took the words out of my mouth. I was going to say that as well. And I was thinking, I was going to ask you, do you think that I'm getting a little caught up with it? But, you know, Derek Walton, Justin Simon, probably the clear best two, probably Glover. And the other thing is the breakers were obviously wearing DJ Vasiljevic uh, like a cheap suit this entire season. I mean, he had no uh, airspace, no room to move. He was actually an efficient scorer, DJ. And this was the point I was making coming into the game. He was 60% on twos, 42% from three. He, he just didn't get a lot of open looks outside of uh, some breakdowns from the breakers, particularly in game three in Sydney, yep. where the Kings were able to blow them out. He was able to knock down some shots. But it was a tough night for DJ. He had early foul trouble, and then he struggled to get that momentum throughout. So they yep. needed someone at the guard spot to be that secondary scorer, and Glover was that. Uh, for the entire series and not only did he play the minutes that you mentioned 21 minutes had the 12 points at nine rebounds including three offensive Mm. rebounds and if you're in a game five and you need those second chance opportunities huge stuff and he was plus 14 and this is a game that the kings won by eight so his minutes were just super super impactful in this game a huge night for angus glover and as you know by the way as you were telling that story and you know this ogs uh, i've had three knee reconstructions and and i'm i'm curious I didn't know oh, that. You didn't know that? I have no idea that, that you went through that. 
No. Uh, it'll be a surprise to many, not quite the athlete that Angus Glover is. So that's why I'm sitting here doing a podcast <laughs> and, not, and not hanging out by the Sydney Harbour now, drinking champagne and doing chewies. <laughs> but I'm a little confused because I had hamstring, hamstring for the first two. And then the third one, I went patella tendon. And I'm curious why my dad didn't step up to the plate and offer up his hamstring tendon. What the hell's going on? So it's, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, my, if I'm going to guess, I'm not a doctor, but my guess is that like, if you're Angus Glover, like <laughs> maybe it's important to keep your patella tendon as intact as mm. it can be. That's just my yeah. guess. Um, be a shout out to his dad. Better than your dad. No doubt about it. No, no, no. I'm unfortunate because I know my dad will absolutely not listen to this podcast. Now, I feel guilty now. I feel terrible. Uh, Chase Buford. Mm. Two years in the league, two titles. You know, I think a lot of us suspect that, you know, he might have some opportunities elsewhere and certainly a decision to make in the offseason. I've said this before. We're in the press conferences. I don't care about the 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 emotional stuff. I, like that just doesn't bother me, and I, I'm not offended by any of it. But I know for a fact that he's loved, you know, by the Kings, and for what he's been able to do, he's been a big part of you know helping to to bring guys to to this team and bring them together. There's no doubt this is a pretty tight knit Sydney Kings team, and I just hope that when we look back at it, it is respected how challenging this league has been over the last two years to come in here and win two titles in two years. He's still super, super young as a coach. When you put everything else that he's had, the 2021, he was with the Bucs and they won an NBA title. The year before that, he was with the Wisconsin Herd and they had the best record in the league before COVID shut everything down. The resume this guy is building is extreme. And yes, he has stuff to work on. I I, I never deny that. Mm. But he has been good for the league. He's been obviously been great for the Kings. And I just think, I just hope that he gets the credit he deserves because I think too often there is too much negativity um, around the, the narrative, the way people want to talk about what he's done for this Kings team. Yeah, I agree. And uh, that's, that'll, that criticism would largely come from rival fans. Absolutely. Right? Because, because you'll see Trevor Gleason when he was in the league. It's true. He, he was talking a lot of, he would talk a lot on the sideline, right? But I feel like overall, when people step back and look at it, there's an appreciation of of how excellent he is as a head coach. Um, I think the same can be said for someone like Dean Vickerman. People appreciate just how high level a coach he is, especially defensively, despite some of the sort of sideline antics that you see. You know, Chase Buford does have his sideline antics. He has his press conference antics. He is a character. Um, and for the most part, that is a helpful thing when you you exist in a big market like Sydney, you exist in uh, a market like the NBL that wants characters, right? And so the M- the general NBL ecosystem loves that. Um, but I think once you strip all of that away, it is important to notice, just like with those other guys, this guy has only demonstrated himself to be a high-level coach. He has only demonstrated success over the course of his very young coaching career. And we know he had offers from NBA teams last offseason, he's probably going to get them again this offseason. And again, as much as you might, you might not like him personally because of some little bits and pieces that you've seen, it is un- those opportunities that come are undoubtedly deserved based on what he's demonstrated throughout his career so far, especially with the Sydney Kings. Yeah, absolutely agree. And, uh, and again, I think overall, and this is for me 
talking about my personal experience from doing this job and the access. And I think, you know, for the most part, all the NBL teams are great. But I've been lucky enough to go to New Zealand a couple of times this season and work with the Breakers. I've done a lot of stuff with the Kings. They might be the most controversial team in terms of social media stuff and all that. Like they're not shy about promoting their own team, getting into the whole rivalry stuff and trying to fire up stuff for whether you like it or not. I think the betterment of the league in terms of drawing attention to the league. I think the Kings and the Breakers are the best at it. And I just personally find from, from working with those teams, nothing but class, the access is there. The ability to tell cool stories, what I hope is cool stories, um, has been there. So I, I appreciate both these teams if we just talk about it, our own jobs. And maybe people aren't interested in this, but I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, and, and the thing with the Sydney Kings that I appreciate, um, and I think we should talk about Modi Mayor as well as a head coach, because he's just yeah. sort of, I don't think he's put a foot wrong since he's become a head coach. But with the Sydney Kings, you know, there is so much value. If you look just up that sort of leadership group that they have. Like Chase Buford, again, has only demonstrated himself to be effective as a head coach. Chris Pongrass has only been demonstrated himself to be effective as a basketball decision maker and as a CEO. Paul Smith, for all of his warts, he gives a shit, right? And that is valuable in an owner, in, a, in, a, in an ownership group, right? It, there, are, there are teams around the league who where there is the perception that their ownership doesn't care about the results, right? Um, Paul Smith, you can't say that about him, right? He clearly cares as much, and and perhaps too much, right? And if that's the sort of thing you're going to be criticized for, I think he'll take that if he cares too much. And then the people they've surrounded the franchise with, you know, Luke Longley has an ownership stake. Andrew Bogut has an ownership stake. They've only they've surrounded this entire franchise with people who have demonstrated themselves to be really high level at the jobs they do. So it's not a complete surprise that they're achieving the ultimate success two years in a row. Um, Luke Longley. We talk, I was talking to some people last night. He may be the only person to have won two NBL championships as, as an owner of separate teams. He was, an owner, he was part of the ownership group of the Perth Wildcats back in the early 2000s. He won a championship then. He won a championship, back-to-back championships now. Um, this was the first he's done it as an owner. So they have just, this entire Sydney Kings franchise has just been surrounded by and he's being led by people who are proven to be really, really effective at their respective jobs. And so them winning back-to-back titles is as deserved as it comes. And I think they should be a blueprint that other teams um, try to follow. Yeah, they're like a... uh, I don't know if there's many WWF or WWE fans listening to this podcast, but they're like like an old-school faction. Like They might be like Evolution with Ric Flair, Triple H, Batista, and Randy Orton. When you watch the Sydney Kings and sideline every single game, Pongrass, Smith, Bogan, Longley... (laughs) You just see them. They they roll around, the four of them, and they uh they they just uh, they stick together. And as you it's said, it's an intimidating passionate. baseline courtside situation, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it absolutely is. So they're they're like an old school WWF faction. So shout out to those guys. Uh, let's get to the breakers. But I want to make one last point before we do on on the Kings because we could just go through the list. There were so many great performances. Bruce was huge. Uh, Jordy Hunter had big moments. I I just want to acknowledge. That And I don't know how you feel, but I think as the years go on, if I think back to this series, there is going to be two things that I remember, and it's not to take away anything from anyone else. They, they were, the, the Kings as a team, the depth was outstanding, 
But I'm going to remember, as we pointed to, the Glover stuff in the fourth quarter. And mm. i tell you what else I'm going to remember. I'm going to remember Justin Simon in game two because if he didn't deliver what he did in the second half of that game, he was awesome throughout, but particularly the second half of that game when the Kings were on the ropes and they really were a, a chance to be swept out of this thing. Mm. Justin Simon single-handedly grabbed this series by the scruff of the neck and said, let's extend this shit and try and win another title. So those are the two things I remember. Justin Simon, just huge. Going into that game too, it was, there was the storyline, right? It was, how did the Kings stop McDowell White? And I think just the nature of Will McDowell White's game uh, excels against the nature of the way that the Sydney Kings play defense, right? And, and it's the sort of thing where they will live with certain outcomes based on the percentages. That was the way the Sydney Kings came into this series and it ultimately worked. But there was also a level of sort of, and again, we've, we talk about how simplistic it sounds, but just hard work and effort that came into making those outcomes even more or less likely. And so if that means playing that little bit higher up on McDowell White or you know, chasing over that screen a little bit harder and trying not to get screened and that sort of thing, that's what Justin Simon brought to that game too. And I think put that sort of sliver of doubt in McDowell White's head that maybe I don't like coming off this on ball with hmm. Justin Simon sort of locking and trailing me, just basically just being a shadow. Um, and so it, it, he absolutely changed the series. And then there is no surprise that, you know, Derek Walton Jr. walked away with grand final MVP. Um, it is no surprise that Justin Simon was second in that voting. So if, if I look at the, the numbers, it's, Derek Walton Jr. had 31 votes. Simon had 27. So this was close. This came down to ten, to uh, Wednesday night. If it wasn't for Derek Walton absolutely going crazy and taking over that game and getting wherever he wanted and, and basic, what I assume, getting all 15 of the, the first place votes for that game, this would have been Justin Simon's grand final MVP. And I think for someone who has his offensive limitations and you know they're talked about a lot, he is so elite defensively. His ability to change games is is just incredible. Uh, just quickly, and I, I don't know if you're allowed to reveal this. So oh. you you voted for the Grand uh, Championship Series MVP. Would Walton have won on your votes alone? Uh, I don't know what I'm allowed to reveal. Um, <laughs> I, hey, I this think... is the last podcast for the season. Let's get let's get you in some real trouble with do? the league. What are I they going to do? I want Larry calling you after he <laughs> listens to this podcast. <laughs> I it, it wouldn't have surprised me if it was tied. Yeah, okay. Or very, just extremely close. But as far as the Kings, it was easily those two. Um, yep. My guess is that it would have been tied. Um, but again, my guess is that for as much as Justin Simon probably would have got everybody's like three vote for that game two, my guess is that. Derek Walton Jr. would have got everyone's three vote, probably for game three and game five. And so that's, if you just do the math, that's 30 votes right there. That's enough to win it. So maybe maybe there needs to be a change in the way this thing is voted on because really all it takes is two elite games and you're good. Then And you get your 30 votes and, and you're probably sweet. Um, but this was a, a pretty kind of broad voting situation. There are a bunch yeah. of guys with, you know, 20, 10. Like it, it was, there are a lot of people who got votes, but... Yeah, maybe that voting needs to change. But yeah, Derek Walton Jr., Justin Simon, they were sort of neck and neck. Yeah, obviously Xavier Cooks last year, I 
think Darrell Martin might have been close. I remember in the closeout game, and it was only three games, so it might have been a little bit more uh, compact there. But mm. I, I believe Darrell had 20 and 10 or something in the championship Clinton game. He was an absolute monster against the Jack Jumpers last season. Let's go to the Breakers. They deserve mm. a hell of a lot of credit. Uh, I'm not going to be a person that's going to sit here and say, well done, you should feel like you won the title because they didn't. And they don't want to hear that. that that's, not, that's not what the Breakers want to hear. But they had so many moments in this series where as I was just thinking it through in my head, I was like, geez, I don't know how they come back from this mentally. Like how are they thinking through this series in their own head? And that's why I'm not a professional athlete because I am mentally soft compared to the New Zealand (laughs) breakers in this season, but losing that game too, just Mm. brutal, just absolutely brutal stuff. And then they get blown out in game three and to come home and not only winning game four, but as I said, I was in the building. And when the Kings closed to within two points at the end of the third quarter, I thought this series was done. I didn't think there was any chance that the Breakers were going to be able to hold back the Kings. And it was Will McDowell-White hitting two huge threes and getting to the basket for another floater. Then Barry Brown uh, sealed the deal in that game. And even in this game five, huge lead early, all the momentum goes to the Sydney Kings. And then the Breakers were still able to find themselves seven points up. Like I just the the toughness of this team to just literally be able to work through any situation that feels like it's going against them and continue to push the Kings to the absolute limit. It was extraordinary because it's not like when people say teams could have folded, it's not like they consciously make a decision. I don't want to try anymore. Yeah. But when you constantly keep getting hit by this team that's been there before and won the title of the season before to be able to keep coming back and coming back, that is just so tough. They were incredible. Probably the the it's the most it's the thing I'm most impressed with about Will McDowell White, which is after that game two and then you know backs against the wall after game three and all of the coverages that he saw the the intense nature of the way Justin Simon played him and even the way Jalen Galloway played him, um, and the way they switched up those coverages, his ability to respond after getting hit, um, and Sydney King the Sydney Kings would go under those ball screens. He would hit that big three, and it seemed like he did on a pretty at a con, pretty uh, consistent basis. They would play up in him, and he would hit that float at a really high level. Like he was just responding to every single thing the Kings threw at him to the point where you thought, like if if a few like two years ago or last year, this Will McDowell White probably folds at that point. But he's worked to a point where his game is at a level where he can overcome those sort of things and. The Sydney Kings were a high-level defensive team the entire season, and have, in my opinion, the best defender in the league. To to go up against that and, and still produce and, and still play your game and seemingly not be affected by the the nature of where the series is at the time or the, or the nature of how they're playing you that was unbelievably impressive. And so from McDowell White to Jarrell Brantley to you know Barry Brown, who I do have some criticisms of, but his ability just to stay confident and he hit big shots across the series. He, he won them that game four. With, with some of the shots he hit toward the end of that series, in the end of that game. But, you know, their ability to just keep hitting and not lose confidence was really impressive, especially for a team that, you know, McDowell White's never been in a grand final before. I don't, don't know about those imports, but this, this was a team that was practically, was, was bottom of the ladder last season. And they just kept fighting. Yeah, and I think the thing that stands out to me about why or how that, happened is because uh, a first of all as you mentioned Modi Mayor just the ultimate motivator he, he's mm. an absolute hard ass 
And he's on these guys all the time. But I think he also understands the right moments to put his arm around someone while also tearing them a new one uh, when he's not happy. Like, I I think he found that balance very early in the season to get this team fully bought in. And they were able to ride the wave through the whole season. But the other point is, Matt Walsh and everyone involved in recruiting for this team, they just recruited a bunch of absolute hard asses who, (laughs) when things get physical and when things get difficult, they're smiling about it. And when they left the arena in game four, I was like, okay, well, they won. I wonder how they're feeling. And any one of the players that I got to speak about about game five and how physical this series is, they were laughing. They were smiling. They're like, we love this. We're not worried about this. Get us on the plane. Let's play the game tomorrow. And I was like, okay, these guys actually seriously do think that A, they can win this series and B, they hope that it gets even more physical and even more down and dirty. So they just brought in obviously a bunch of skilled guys, but a bunch of guys that that want to play that style. And we know this league well enough now. We spoke about it all season long. But if you are an elite defensive team, you're going to be right in the mix. They were number one for much of the season, but certainly finished the season, uh, the regular season with the number one defensive rating. They loved it. This was the type of series that they really wanted to sink their teeth into. Yeah, and there was a point in that game five where Jarrell Brantley had a little spin move on Xavier Cooks, got the and one, and it felt like at that time, I want to say that brought it back to a double-digit lead league for, uh, lead for New Zealand. It felt like at that time that, oh no, like Brantley is feeling it. Yeah. He, he knows he's the better matchup in that position. Um, and there's just no stopping him at that point because he just has this sort of unrivaled confidence that he would just continue to go at Xavier Cooks in the post and, and keep he kept getting up shots. And there was something about that that almost that, that felt like it was a personification of the way that team is and the way that team has been built. But it was also the sort of thing that can damn near win you a championship. And it very well nearly did. And, and so that's the sort of player that teams need to recruit. And I think, I think he'll have a bunch of interest this free agency. But again, it seems like he was just made for, for that breakers team. And they clearly had a mold in which they wanted to work around. And they, they, wanted, they want guys to fit into this sort of team. And Brantley just made so much sense in that position. And one of the cooler things last night was in Moni Mayor's presser where he was midway through answering a question about McDowell White. And we just, we sort of look to the right and we see Jarrell Brantley's head just poking through the door, just smiling, just telling us how much he loves Modi Mayor and, and how good a coach he is and how much, um, that if you're an import thinking about coming to the NBL, then Modi's the guy you want to play for. And that, that's a really cool appreciation to have for, you know, a, a first year import and a first year head coach. Yeah, we say this, with the the really great teams at the end of every season. But I hope a bunch of those guys are back uh, because it's Mm. a fun team. And I would love to see uh, that team on a revenge tour. If you can even call it a revenge tour, they went to game five of the championship series, but uh, it would be fun to see them go at it again next year. I would be fascinated with that. Uh, We already mentioned Murdy Mayor, class act right through the season, right through this series as well. Uh, Just a quick note on Tom Abercrombie. So I, I don't know, you know, what's going to happen. It would have been incredible if he was able to pick up another championship, but you know, talk about good guys of the league, stuff he had to go through with the, the really nasty eye injury at the start of this season. It was cool to see him after a couple of really rough years have the success he did, particularly towards the back end 
of this series. And I don't know whether he does this every game, so I'm not suggesting anything, but the last game at Spark Arena, game four, I don't know if the broadcast caught it, but he walked off the court with all his family, his kids into the locker room. I don't know what that means, but uh, he's been awesome and clearly a, a legend of the, that franchise and the league. Yeah, and that's the sort of player where you want him to be in a winning environment because that's just what he's existed in for so long. Yeah, yeah. And it just sucked that the, the Breakers were just in this patch in their sort of narrative as a franchise where they weren't having success on the court. And so it sucks to see someone like that sort of, and it sounds kind of mean, but have to be a part of it because, you know, he that he's a breaker through and through. And so it was cool to see. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a nice gift to Abercrombie that this team was able to, that, you know, the guys who make decisions for that team were able to put together a, a high-level team that can compete and give him a chance to go and win another title. It, like, it is, I'm sure it's like the, the pride and joy for guys like Tom Abercrombie to play in those sorts of arenas, in those sorts of environments with those stakes. Um, and so I, I kind of, I appreciate that from Abercrombie. And I, I hope it's not the last we see of him because he's still, he's still got plenty left in the tank, clearly. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, without knowing what he has to go through physically to get himself to the line for every game, he certainly looked like uh, he could go again based on what we saw this season. And I think, you know, you pointed to it, but I think for someone like him, who, who's been in the NBL since, you know, 2007, 8, 9, around that mark, where things were not good for this league, I, yeah. I imagine when he gets home and sort of thinks about it, he'll be disappointed and he'll hate it, but he'll think, man, I was just played two games in front of 19,000 people, record crowd in Auckland. I'm sure, or I'd hope that he looks back at that and goes, yeah, that that series is going to be one of the highlights I'll, I'll look back on, even if we weren't able to pick up the ring. Final thoughts, Oaks, as we wrap this up? Um, shout out, again, another shout out to Sydney just for the the crowds. Oh. Um, the... Those those two games, those game the game three and game five, and especially that game five because of the short turnaround after game four and you know the amount of time they had to sell tickets, um, you know they pulled off on a Wednesday night the largest crowd in NBL history with a short turnaround to sell those tickets. Right, that is in a vacuum unbelievably impressive. Um, remove that vacuum and you look at the wider context of. Uh, sports in Sydney and the fickle fan base that uh, fan base that exists within like the Sydney sporting ecosystem that is really really impressive Um, the most impressive thing was that it felt organic it felt really healthy and sustainable it wasn't just like the Lamello game where there was also a bushfire appeal and we're doing five dollar tickets and whatever sure that there were some tickets that were you know the costs were lowered but this seemed really organic this seemed like we want to go to the Sydney Kings game so we can watch the Sydney Kings win a championship. It's not just, we want to go see LaMelo. We want to see Andrew Bogan play. No, this was, we want to support the Sydney Kings because they're our team and we want to watch them go back to back. So that was really impressive just from Sydney Kings ownership to, to everyone who works in that front office for getting that done. Um, and I've covered basketball in this country for nearly 10 years now. It was probably one of the most impressive basketball environments that I've seen in Australia. Um, you know, we've covered NBA games, we've covered playoff games, we've covered, you know, World Cup sort of Olympic sort of situations too. As far as basketball games in Australia, that game five was just one of the most impressive overall setups and, and environments that I've ever been in. And it just gets you excited. Uh, we're in it and, and we love it. Mm. And we get excited by it. And we know that now on the back of this, 
You've got all the Aussies doing stuff in the NBA. You've got a World Cup coming up. And then you're going to, before you know it, you're going to be back into another NBL season. And based on what we've seen over the last few years, it's going to get even more crazy, which is the yeah. fun part about it. And we're obviously pretty lucky to be in the position that we're in. So again, congratulations to the Kings, back-to-back champions, the Breakers, ridiculous season, nothing but respect uh, for that team and everyone involved uh, yep. with the New Zealand Breakers. An awesome season, a crazy season. And uh, it was probably only fitting that it came down to such a wild game with the scores tied through three quarters in the final game of the season. So it was awesome. As I said, I'm still excited about it. People can probably (laughs) tell from listening to this podcast. But the basketball is going to keep rolling, Oaks. And you are the man that everyone needs to keep an eye on over the next few weeks and the the next month or so. And I say that, I know I like to be a little bit silly and crack (laughs) a bunch of jokes and try to be a funny guy when I'm not that funny. But in all seriousness, you are the absolute best at this time of year and you bring all the news that NBL fans need. So they need to be locked into you and ESPN.com.au. Thanks, Kane. Uh, we'll, we'll do some free agency chatter Absolutely. next week. Free agency officially. So options have got to be in by March 27. Free agency officially kicks off on March 30 at 9 a.m. And, you know, I'd expect some deals to be done on that day. Uh, yep. So, so keep an eye out. Keep an eye out for some some of the content we're going to have as far as previewing it, our thoughts, where we're hearing guys might end up, and things like that. And yeah, stay tuned. It's a fun time of year. Very fun. Some would say the off season sometimes is a little more crazy than the actual season as well. And the NBL, the free agency, just this period of year seems to grow every year as well. So, as I said, ESPN.com.au. Uh, for all the latest news, and you will not miss anything. You should have Olgs on Twitter if you're if you're not on there. Uh, get that job done. And uh, also, we'll keep rolling through these podcasts. The only way to know when we actually are going to drop them, though, is if you subscribe. Uh, that's free to do, and you'll know when the latest show uh, drops. So make sure you do that. Olgs, great season from you. Uh, great this season was... from you. Uh, thank you, mate. This is a lot of fun. Uh, my big question as we wrap this up, when are you coming back to Melbourne? We used to go out for lunch, have coffees. Now you've just deserted me again for the second best city in Australia. I mean, I'm in the best city. How do you? <laughs> uh, no, I, we'll, we, we will see. I've been in Sydney for these, this grand final series. I'll probably hang around here for a little bit. Uh, but I'm, ever, I'm everywhere. I'm going to hit the, hit the north to watch some oh. NBL One North action. I think under-18 wow. championships are up there too. Nice. I'll check that out. I'll get to Summer League. I'll, I'll be around this offseason. Well, safe travels in your journey. We speak every day anyway. True. I'll probably catch you next week, Olgs. I'll speak to you then. Bye, Kane.